The title of the elusive Roman numeral seven is how do we properly apply? So you, you've learned the four categories, right? Can you, can you kind of repeat them? What to do, where to do it, why and how. Okay, so those are kind of our, if we're thinking about the structure of application, that's kind of what are the standard pieces. Uh, I'll do a little further. What is most often not done at all? How? That's, that's the one that we frequently avoid overall. Um, the what we almost always do. The where is what makes it most powerful. Uh, and the pe- experienced people just kind of do it naturally. Inexperienced people are kind of finding their way there. You know, where does this make a difference in your life? Uh, the why, I, I would say that's where we're really going to get to gospel motivation. So we've got to get there before our day ends. But the why really is where the gospel comes into play so that people are rightly motivated for the what things. So we'll, uh, we'll get there. But um, let, me, let me just, uh, if we're thinking about um, explanation, illustration, application. And um, this actually makes things simpler that I'm not trying to fill in all your blanks. <laughs> things about how to do this. So uh, how do we properly apply? So first principle is we principalize, made up word, main points. Principalize main points. So whether you're asking questions to get people to respond or you are doing a presentation directly, there are certain uh, things that are just kind of standard of how application begins. So remember I had an FCF up here, right? Here's, here's an issue, all right? And um, one of the standard, I don't want to call it errors, um, kind of elementary ways of approaching a text is we just describe the text in order. You know, we'll, we'll say things like, um, first, Israel marched around Jericho. And then uh, second, um, Israel blew trumpets as they marched around Jericho. And then third, uh, they saw the walls fall down. Now, that can sound very biblical. I mean, you're just saying what's in the text, and you can, you know, describe how big Jericho was, and you can give lots of information. But for those who teach the preaching or teaching of the Bible, we actually call that a description error. What I just did was described the text rather than applied the text, okay? How do you move from description to application? And that's that funny word. We principalize the text. So a principle would be something like this. Instead of um, Israel approached Jericho, we say, follow, God's people follow God's word. Now, what's the proof that God's people followed God's word? He told them to go up to Jericho, and where'd they go? A description of the text only repeats the facts. If you principalize the text, you're saying, what principles do I derive from that text? What are the truth principles that I derive from the text? People are usually starting out explaining Scripture, only describe the text. 
First this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Those who are experienced, and we'll see why in just a minute, they say, no, what's the principle that that detail proves, right? So I'm still gonna bring out the details. It's the proof of the principle. But I principalize the points that I'm making. Then I say, uh, Israel marched around Jericho. I will say, well, they didn't just follow God's word. They obeyed God's word. They did what he said. And then they um, witnessed the walls falling. And uh, I would say, for instance, they depend on God's power. So what does it mean um, to obey God in difficult circumstances? We follow his word, obey his word. I could actually say this probably better to say we determine. We determine God's word, we obey his word, and we depend on God's power. These are principles based upon the facts of the text. So I can just give you one more set of examples. Um, if I'm preaching on the flood, okay, describing the text, that's all I'm doing. Noah built the ark. Noah sailed the ark. Noah sinned against God. Classic description of the text, not application of the text. If I'm going to say that Noah built... Follow God's instruction. What does the word teach us here? That we are to follow God's instruction. Noah sailed. That's what he did. Almost always descriptions that are not applications are in the third person. Here's what they did. Here's what Israel did. Here's what Noah did. Here's what David did. Here's what Goliath, you know, third person description. So instead of Noah sailed, we'd say, endure the storms God brings. A principle. Noah sinned later. Seek God's mercy even after the storm. Okay. A principle. Now, why do I need principles? Because I got to apply something. And Noah sailed is not something I can apply. <laughs> right? Israel marched around Jericho is not something, I'm going to have to convert it to a principle at some point. I just have to do that because I'm saying, here's how this applies to you. So inevitably, moving from description to principle is not just a step of explanation. It's back to what's the significance of that truth, right? Yes, that's what the text said. What's the significance of that text? So converting details to principles is what our people are actually waiting for. What, what is, I, 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 I understand where Jericho was and how big it was and how many miles it was around, but what's the significance of that to me? Well, I'm learning that I need to determine God's word to be able to go up against the enemies that I face. I need to obey God's word. I need to depend upon God's power. These are the principles proven by the facts of the text. So I'm not regurgitating facts. I'm actually identifying principles. Now, how is that going to help me? If I'm saying I need to determine God's word, obey God's word, and depend on God's power, these, if you will, if they're parts of the explanation, I'm actually taking those, and to apply them, 
I'm going to say what situations in life does that apply? This is the what. This is the where. In what situations do those truths apply? Now, again, we said these come out of the text. Where do we say this comes out of? The situations. Where does that come out of? Relationships. Understanding the people to whom I'm talking. What are they dealing with? What are they facing? What are their struggles? And to back to the notion of truth to struggle, I'm taking truth to struggle. The struggle is the situation. The truth is what is I, I have identified. Now, I know this is just kind of like you're seeing a model of communication up here on the board, but I want you to think pastorally, discipling, shepherding people, what that means. Do you remember what you're doing? Truth to struggle. You're not just putting a bunch of legalistic duties on people. You're actually saying, in this situation, here's how these truths help. I'm not adding burden, I'm releasing burden. I'm showing how God's word applies to your situations. So uh, if, if I'm saying, you know, what, what do I do when, when everyone in the company lies on their expense reports and I'm told to do it too, which by the way, some of you have been in that situation. I've been in that situation, you know, where you're actually instructed. The way that we give people bonuses, we let them fudge on their expense reports. So you're welcome to do that to an extent. And everyone does it. And I damage my family if I don't. But if the enemy to my obedience is that great, what is God calling me to do? And then I'm identifying the situation. Now, the earlier question, which was very astute, is, have we not narrowed that truth? Right? So here are these kind of grand principles. We determine God's word. We obey God's word. We depend upon God. I mean, these are, these are wonderful principles for life. But in dealing with people, I narrowed it just to somebody who's being urged to fudge on their expense reports. I mean, isn't that limiting the work of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that making the truth too narrow for the expanse with which Scripture is expressing it? And the answer is yes. So how do we get beyond the difficulty of being situationally specific, which we know adds significance? People go, oh, I, I see where that makes a difference in life. So now it's significant because it's got situational reference. I've said where this makes a difference, knowing the people relationally that I'm talking to, but not making it so narrow that it misses people I don't happen to mention. How do I deal with that? We break down the fence of application by having said, here's this situation people urge to fudge on their expense reports say, but you know, those of you in school are being urged to cheat on your test. 75% of people do. Those of you who are in medical perfection know that you have all kinds of opportunities to make more money if you will not put what the drugs actually cost the company. What did I just do? Do you remember what a mag light is? Remember a mag light where you focus the beam like that? You know, you, you twist the top to focus the beam. Here's what we're doing. We are saying, here's God's truth, the light of the word. And now I focus the beam by pointing at this situation. Here's a situation where those truths, fudging on your expense room. But that's not the only situation. I focus the beam. 
There are those of you who are in academic settings. There are those of you in pharmaceutical business. What have I done with my light beam? Focused it on the first situation, and it's and here and here. The reason is this. There are little rubrics that we go by in preaching and communication. One is this. If you try to speak to everybody, you really speak to, you all know it. You know, you're not even professional speakers, but you know that truth. If you try to speak to everybody, it just, you know, goes over everybody's head. But if you will try to be specific, right? So famous statement about Spurgeon. He talked to a thousand people as though he were talking to one. The opposite of if you try to speak to everyone, no one listens, which in rhetoric is known as, um, the, it, it, which is that the universal is the abstract. If I try to do everybody, it's just abstraction. The opposite is the particular is the universal. If I try to speak to everyone, I really speak to nobody. But if I will speak to just one person directly, who listens? Everybody. The particular is the universal. The universal is abstract. So what that means is, when we have done this, your question was so appropriate, I was amazed that you asked it so early. If we're only dealing with one situation, we have narrowed people's ability to think about that text. But if we've said, that's a particular, I can see how that, but now it applies to you and to you, I've now broadened the horizon to, so that you see, oh, there are more situations in which that applies. So now the Holy Spirit works in my heart to say, I need to think, because it's not just that situation. There are other situations in which this applies. So I've done that pastoral work of both situational specificity and Holy Spirit dependence. They're operating together now because I've taken care to be specific about the, uh, the where. Where would this make a difference in your life or their life or their life? Now everybody gets considered, and what about your life, right? So that's the situational development. And do you remember what I said? If you, it's almost always hardest to come up if you're not experienced in preaching and Bible studies and discipleship, the first situation, right? That, that's the hardest thing. Tell me what situation that applies to. These truths, where they apply. So if I'll point to the situation, that gives power. Now, in most of our settings, including the way I just drew this, we think about this. The illustration is to make clear the explanation. But your preaching, your teaching will have such more power if you say, actually, the illustration is the first situation. Here are people struggling with something, and here's how these truths help. So you're actually using the illustration to describe people or circumstances in which that truth applies. Now, again, not all of you are experienced communicators yet, but I want you to think of the difference of, I'm going to tell a silly little tale about a frog in a bucket, and that'll really strike your hearts. <laughs> As opposed to, let's talk about where this has made a difference in somebody's life. And you're actually describing in the illustration the application. Okay? So you're not just kind of doing a little rhetorical story. You're actually saying, here's where this makes a difference in people's lives. I'm going to stop there.
for, and see if you have questions. So what I've encouraged is to say, we principalize the points that we're trying to make. We're not just saying, here's factoids from the text. Factoids are not gonna help people. What are the principles? And we're actually organizing our communication around the principles that are proven by the facts, but the facts are not the, how we organize our presentation. The principles are how we organize, and then we show how those principles deal with situations. That's not just good rhetoric. It is such good pastoring and shepherding. Because again, what you're doing is, I've already gone the road ahead of you, say, how do these truths deal with your struggles? I haven't just added a bunch of you know, legalisms at the, here's five things to do. I'm actually showing you how the biblical text deals with situations like we face, which by the way are situations like they faced, the FCF. Spiritually helpful, scripturally cohesive, right? This is that FCF, you share it. Here are the principles that deal with that. That's how the Bible is addressing our situation. You still with me? Okay. This was how we take instruction to situations. That was the what and the where. Now let's start talking about the why. Because we've said that's part of a biblical application as well. There are typical errors that revolve around how we biblically motivate people to do what the Bible requires. The usual errors are saying there is not a plurality of motivations. There's not a plurality of motivation. In other words, there are many motivations in Scripture. Some people say, no, the only motivation is love. The only motivation is fear, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, the only motivation is gain. You know, that's prosperity gospel, right? The Lord intends to prosper your lives, and therefore the, you know, the chief things that should motivate us is prosperity. Um, and you have to say, well, listen, it's not just true that there's one motivation, right? So... Clearly, God intends to motivate us by love for him. Um, but at the same time, we recognize he warns us in the Bible about consequences of our sin. So part of our motivation is to avoid consequences, you know, taking care of ourselves. So one mistake about biblical motivation is to say that there's not a plurality. There are many motivations. Here's the other mistake. That there is not a priority of motivations. You're already gonna know the answer to this. What is the prime motivation in all of scripture? What is the greatest commandment in the Bible? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, that is the prime commandment. So what is the prime, if that's the prime commandment, what is the prime, what is the prime motivation in scripture? It is love for God, it has to be. Right? So there, there is no higher priority than love for God. That has to be the highest commandment, and therefore it is the highest motivation. Is it the only motivation? No. 
um, there is another motivation. If you love Christ above all things, whom will you also love? You will love whom he loves. If he's your highest love, his loves become yours. Does that make sense? So if you love Christ, you will also love what and whom he loves. What does that mean? Whom does Jesus love? The unlovely? The orphan? The widow in distress? The oppressed? His creation? If you love Christ above all things, you will love what and whom he loves. What does that mean? It means first that application, what we are telling God's people to do, has to, above all other things, be driven by love for God. Now, let's ask a simple question. What creates love for God? We love because because he first loved us. So if I'm telling people, listen, you must do this application. You must follow this command. You must do it, and I say, but you must do it with biblical motivation. What has to be the highest motivation? Love God. Love for God has to be the highest motivation, which is saying, if I am, no matter where I am in Scripture, I have to make sure that people are responding to what I'm demanding from the Scriptures, instruction and situation, I am demanding something for them to respond out of love for God. That has to be there. So when we start out by my saying, wherever you are in Scripture, put on your gospel glasses, right? Which is saying, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about humanity? And there's a gap that God must fill. Why am I doing that? I mean, one reason is just so that people will get the answer right. You know, they'll get the right interpretation. They'll see the text in its context. Yes. But more than that, I recognize the right things for the wrong reasons are wrong. And if I do not show people how love for God is motivating their response, they will do it for the wrong reasons. They'll try to pay off the ogre in the sky so he won't get them. Instead of, no, I'm doing this out of love for, and I've got to show these people how love for God is displayed in this text, because that is the highest motivation. There are other motivations, right? Love for others, love by God. Um, Those of you who have the theological background usually say that we say the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is the commandment behind all love and worship, whereas the second commandment, and the second commandment is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is the basis of all missions and ethics, right? You love others as you love yourself, right? But before that was love for God. Now, that means if I'm thinking about motivation, the first reason that people should serve God is love for God. The second reason is love for those loved by God both of which are going to be displayed if I will explain the text in its redemptive context. There is one more motivation that we should be aware of. Beyond love for God and love for others loved by God, the final motivation, strangely enough, that is proper biblically, is love for self. Love for self, but only if it's in the third position. If I'm teaching people right biblical motivation, love for God, love for those loved by God, and love for self 
as one loved by God. Now, maybe, maybe that seems it's getting late in the day, and so I guess I want to say some of the dearest things, and I hope some dear ways. I hear Christians at times not understand the power of the love of God for us as sanctioning, giving permission for love of self. One of the most damaging things that happens in our culture right now is the consequence of people hating themselves. And some Christians think it is the mark of holiness that they do. I'm a terrible person, but Jesus, well, yes, that's all true. But if it leads to self-hatred, it is not glorifying God. You and I, those of you who are going to be disciples in the church, will deal with people in some awful, awful circumstances. You will deal with young people who are in self-destructive modes. And if you're dealing with a young woman with anorexia, if you're dealing with women who are in cutting situations and men who are suicidal or self-destructive modes, I must tell you, I, I can almost assure you every time one of the first things you will say to a young person who is caught up in self-hatred, the thing that you will say to them almost every time is, Jesus loves you. It is okay for you to love you because self-hatred is driving so much. It's not the prime motivation, but there is, if, if self-love becomes the prime motivation, it's narcissism, and that is going to be destructive. But, but there is a proper self-love that, that is the reason the warnings in Scripture work. People say, well, if you're going to talk about grace all the time, you can't talk about the warnings. Of course you can, right? If God didn't love you, he wouldn't warn you. And the reason that we're concerned for our, self, our self safety and not experiencing the consequences of sin is because we care about ourselves. And God appeals to that motivation when he gives warnings and he talks about consequences. It's not the prime motivation, but it's one of the motivations. So as we're thinking about not only what to do and where to do it, but why, we examine the scripture we're in and we say, how is it teaching love for God? How is God overcoming human weakness, frailty, sin, and providing for us so that we will love him? Second, is God motivating us by our love for others whom he loves? And third, is God motivating us rightly by a self-love that is a consequence of his love for us. Can self-love ever be proper biblical motivation? Um, some of you um, will recognize the, the Flannery O'Connor short story where um, Flannery O'Connor dis- discusses the, uh, the young women in a parochial school um, who are being chastised by the nun who uh, is concerned that the boys are getting too close to some of the girls. And so the nun chastises the girls and says, now girls, um, you take care of yourselves and you stay away from the boys uh, because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So maintain purity and you stay away from the boys. And as the girls leave the classroom, they begin to mock the nun and chortle. Well, my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And they laugh and joke. Except for one young woman who walks apart from the others. 
because she's already been molested by the boys. But she cries tears of joy because she heard what was said. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And she takes deep and profound joy in the love that God has for us, for her, that gives her love for herself again. There is a proper love of self if it is rooted in love for God above all other loves. Now, the hard question for you, but the important one as we go forward is, what motivates love for God that is so high above all other things? What motivates love for God? His love for us. We love because he first loved us. Last big piece. I want to answer the question of what you believe is the basis of power in the Christian life. How do we do what God says must be done? If we're answering all the application questions, what to do, where to do it, why, out of love for God, as the prime motivation, we still have to answer the how question. How do I do this impossible thing that you tell me that God's word requires? I'm gonna start simply. The first basis of transforming power in the Christian life is knowledge. That is, if I tell you to do something, this is what God requires of you, then your first question is going to be, or I tell you that God has requirements for you, your first question is, what does he require? In order for you to be able to do what God requires, you have to know what he requires. Knowledge is essential to being able to do what God requires. So power relies upon adequate knowledge of duty and doctrine. Now, from the very beginning, I told you, duty and doctrine are necessary but not sufficient. So if all I say is, I have to have adequate competence or performance to be okay with God, I am my redeemer. But I did not say, we don't need to have duty and doctrine. They have a purpose. Their purpose is to give us the knowledge necessary to obey God. They do not have power in themselves, but they are essential to the power that we need. If we do not have knowledge of duty and doctrine, then we cannot please God, which means to the surprise of nobody, I hope, that if we are gonna be discipling people, we need to tell them what God requires of them, right? Just because we are saying that grace is motivation, it does not take off the table, knowledge is necessary to serve God. And, And so we have to teach duty and doctrine, and that is just being responsible if we are discipling other people. Now, it is important to recognize even how duty and doctrine unfold biblically. So some of you will know Micah 6, 8. What does God require of you? If we're saying, I need to know what God requires, what does God require of you, Micah 6, 8? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, 
If you've got on your gospel glasses, that suddenly begins to make a bit of sense in a way that it might not have before. It might have sounded just like a, a list of legalisms. You need to do justice, and you need to love mercy, and you need to walk humbly. With, but think of the gospel order of this. You need to do justice, which is just another Hebrew, Hebrew word for righteousness. You need to do what is entirely righteous. You need to do everything righteously. Piece of cake, go ahead, do it. You know, if you know that is the requirement for you to do righteously in every circumstance and situation, brother, you better love some mercy. You will require it. Do justice and love mercy. And if you love mercy, what's that gonna do to your heart? You are going to walk humbly with your God. Not my performance, not my ability, not my competence, not my, no, not me, not me but God's provision. Micah 6.8 was leading us from the very beginning down the gospel path. And we understand knowledge of duty and doctrine are gonna do exactly those things. If I really understand the duty, I better love some mercy. If I really understand the doctrine, who God is and what he requires, I will be very humble before him and others. Not much room for pride here. But still I need these. I must have them. And so to disciple people means we do have to teach the duty and the doctrine of Scripture. That is absolutely necessary. So if you will, I'm going to change this order a little bit. Sorry if your notes are doing that. Not only do we need duty and doctrine, the next thing that we need to have knowledge of is who we are. We need to know not only what God requires, but who we are. I'm going to start very simply. In order for you to be able to, know God, to honor God, the first thing you need to know about yourself, strangely enough, is that you are human. Inextricably, sadly, but in reality, you are human. What does that mean? Uh, there is no temptation taking you such as is common to man. Now, I'll tell you, when you're in your teens and the hormones are raging, you kind of love it, the fact that there's no temptation taking you but such as is common. I mean, misery loves company, you know, and so you know, whatever, I'm, I'm so glad there's other people struggling the way I'm struggling here, you know? So you're, you're glad for that knowledge. Uh, sadly, that's not what that verse means. <laughs> um, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common. That doesn't simply mean that what you're struggling with, someone somewhere out there is also struggling with. You know what it means? It means there's nothing out there, the seeds of which are not already in here. There's no temptation that is not common. How do I know that's true? James told us if you've broken one commandment, how many have you actually broken? All of them. Not to every degree, not to every degree for every person, but there is nothing out there, the seeds of which are not already in here. Do you know why? Because you're human and I'm human 
and there's no temptation but such. Now, because we face common temptations, because we are commonly vulnerable, that means that we can be helped by practical advice. If humans are vulnerable and I'm a human, it means there's some practical things that will help me. Now, some of you who are pastors or elders or those of you who disciple young people, you may have already had to have some tough conversations like every pastor has over time. You may speak to a young man and you may say something like, you may say, now listen to me. When you get off work today, don't you dare take that road home. Because if you take that road home, you're going to stop by that place or that person, and you're going to be in trouble. So while you got a little resolve, you get on another road, and you go the other way home. Now, that may sound like a legalism. It's just Proverbs 4. Okay? Do not put your foot on the path of the wicked. Do not go near the path of the wicked, but turn and go the other direction. That's just practical advice. And part of our discipling people is we give lots of practical advice, right? That's our duty. That's our obligation because the people we're talking to are human and they're vulnerable. And if they don't know they're vulnerable, they're in greater danger than they know. If they, you know, you know, you must know David did not wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I'll commit adultery and murder somebody. You know, he, he, he probably had no inkling in, in pride at the time of how vulnerable he actually, and that's true of all of us. You know, we, we know of brothers and sisters in Christ who have fallen into terrible sin, and we think, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. If David could, you could. I could. You get depressed enough, you struggle enough, you get frustrated enough, there's lots of things you and I could do because we're human. And there's no temptation taking us much as... So we give people practical advice and the scriptures give people practical advice to deal with their vulnerability. And that's part of our obligation as we disciple people. But they need to know something else about who they are. They are not, if they are children of God, they are not only human, they are redeemed. They are redeemed. And they must know that they are redeemed. Now, what what does that mean? It means they are loved by God, united to Christ, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Did you catch those? They are loved by God, united to Christ, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And when you put all those things together, 2 Corinthians 5.17, the apostle says, therefore... In Christ Jesus, we are new creations. Loved by the Father, united to Christ, and indwelt by the Spirit. Therefore, we are new creations. Now, even in the church, when you say that to most people, I'm kind of the response that we expect is people go, man, that is great. I am a new creation. What does that mean? I mean, still looks like me? Still weighs about the same? Still struggles with the old things? What does it mean to be a new creation? I'm going to go way back to Augustine. What does it mean to be a new creation? The definition, biblically, of someone who is unregenerate, 
They are not united to Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The fundamental definition of what that old nature was is this. You were not able not to sin. You were not able not. That is the definition of the old nature, of being unregenerate, not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not unite. You were not able not to sin. I'm not saying you murdered somebody every day. I'm saying nothing you did was for the glory of God, not a single thing. You were not able not to sin. That is not who you are anymore. The Augustinian distinctives, you are now able not to sin. We're not talking perfectionism. We are talking about what the Holy Spirit reveals to your heart. He gives you power to overcome. How do I know that's true? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives. Where? In me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. How did he give himself for me? He died on the cross. But he is alive, and where does he live? In me. What does that mean? It means the resurrected Lord indwells me by his spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in me. He gives, Paul the apostle says, life to my mortal body. I am no longer a slave. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you, Romans 6, 6 and 6, 14. The reality is tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday. Real change is possible. Progress can be made. Now, Satan will sit right there on your shoulder, and he will say there is no hope for you. You can't be fixed. You can't be helped. You've struggled. There's, it, God must hate you because of all the failing in your life and all the weakness in your life, and there is no hope for you. And, and you and I and those we disciple must be willing to say that is a lie. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. The promise of the gospel is that I have been made able to resist the sin that Satan throws at me. Because if you do not believe you can have victory, you've already lost the battle. I'm not talking perfection. I am talking about progress. I am talking about the ability that God can give us as we trust him to provide the power that is needed for progress in the Christian life. It, it is the promise of God. It is the promise of the gospel. And so we sing it with such you know, gusto these days and zeal. I am no longer a slave. And I love for my people to be able to sing and hear that because I want them to, to affirm it to their own hearts, to believe what the gospel says and cast the lie of Satan back in his face. It's not true that I cannot be helped. Will I always struggle some? Of course. But that's not the same as saying you're hopeless, that, 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 no, that, that no change can come. That, that is not the gospel. I am no longer a slave. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. These are wonderful gospel truths because you are redeemed. But as wonderful as are these truths they set up a terrible question. 
Here's the question. If you are no longer a slave and sin no longer has dominion over you, then why do you still sin? The biblical answer that we hate is we sin because we love it. It doesn't have automatic power. It doesn't have compelling power. It doesn't have overwhelming power. We give sin power by loving it more than we love the Savior. Now, no, 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 I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Well, that, that's actually true. I do believe it. But in the moment, we loved the sin more, which is why we yielded to the sin. What did James tell us? Let no man say when he's tempted, he is tempted by God. God cannot be tempted, and he tempts no man. But we are tempted when we are drawn away by our own lusts and desires. Jesus came as light into darkness, but men loved the darkness more than the light. Sin does not have automatic power. We give it power by our love for it. Now, again, I recognize that that our hearts are complicated beasts. And what that means is I can love something I hate. I can actually hate the fact that this lust or this bitterness or this anger, see, I can actually hate the fact that this attracts me and draws me and, stru- and I have to struggle. I, I can hate it at the same time as having an aspect of my being that is attracted to it, which is the reason I go back to it again. I, I, I lick the wound again so that I will feel the bitterness again and be justified in my anger. I, I again consider the the lust or the desire because it feels some aching in my heart in the moment, even though I hate the fact that it does. But what, what actually draws me to the sin, what, what gives the sin his power, is my love for it. I'll say it again. It does not have automatic power. I give it power by loving it. So as hard as that question is, it actually sets up a wonderful biblical truth, which is this. If what gives sin power is our love for the sin, what will displace love for sin? What will displace love for sin? A greater love, which biblically is what? Love for Christ. And why do we love him? What do we say? We love because he... All right, I'm, I'm going to pause and tell you what I think is maybe the most important part of our whole day. Okay, right here. Why do we bother to excavate the grace of all the scriptures? So that we'll be right. <laughs> so, that, so that we'll, you know, we'll say, I know something more than you do, or I'm approaching something better than... no. Listen, the reason that we excavate how how great is the love of God through all the scriptures, how there's a gap between his holiness and our sinfulness, and yet he was always pointing to the fact of God providing for us what we could not provide for him, is so that we we will live in response to that grace. That the love of God for us, how 
undeterred, how resolute, how consistent, how determined was the love of God for people like us would instill such love in us for Christ that it would displace the love for the sin that is so powerful in our hearts. In, um, in our cabin in Missouri for many years, uh, this time of year, we would go to our cabin in the Ozarks and, and we would um, open the water pipes to let all the water out of the cabin. Why would we do that? Because winter's coming. And we know what happens if all the water pipes freeze. It's gonna burst the pipes. And it's gonna get to next spring and uh, we know what we do. We go back and we turn the water back on and we, we close up all the valves that let the water out. And so all the systems closed up except for there's one valve that we leave open as we're refilling the water. And that valve is at the top of the hot water tank, right? Because you leave that valve open. So as the water fills, it's driving out the oxygen that's in the tank to let the air out and the water in. John Owen said, the way that you kill any sin is you deprive it of its life force. What gives sin its life force is our love for it. And if our hearts are filling up with love for Christ, we are driving out the oxygen of love for sin. I'm not talking about happens overnight. I'm not talking about it's like a switch. I'm saying as we fill up our hearts with love for Christ, it is driving out love for sin, that love for sin which was the power that it had in our hearts. We're filling up. The reason that we take people to the grace of God in all the scriptures is no matter where we are, if we're going to have some demands for people, we are saying it is love for Christ that's actually the compelling power of the gospel. What did the Apostle Paul say? Why would I go through this terrible ministry of reconciliation, willing to be whipped and flogged and starve and face bandits and deserts and shipwrecks? Why would I do all that? The love of Christ compels me. It constrains me to do these impossible things as the love of Christ exceeds all other loves for self-protection, for self-care. I don't want to be sentimental or schmaltzy about it, but I want you to understand why it becomes so important. There is no more powerful human motivation than love. Greed is not more powerful. Fear is not more powerful. What drives the mother back into the burning building? It is love. Above self-protection, above self-preservation, it is the most powerful human motivation. And so people say, you know, all this grace stuff is kind of mushy sentiment. I say, that, that is not the biblical understanding. It is the prime command that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And the only thing that instills that, that drives it, that fills it up is we love because he first loved us. So when I am resorting to grace as the motivation of my message, I'm not just kind of saying nice things so people will love me and think this is pleasant to be here today. I'm saying, no, this, this is what compels people beyond their selfishness. And it drives them beyond the power of their sin when they love Christ above all. What, what we are saying is that the ability we have to act upon the knowledge that we have is driven by the power of love for Christ. And that love 
is first the power of holiness. Because I want to walk with Christ. It's that strangeness of the gospel that, that what God is actually changing by our hearts filling up with love for him is he's actually not only displacing loves, he's changing loves, right? That, that we understand we are, we are not just doing what we don't want to do when we obey God. God is actually changing our want-tos as we love him above all things. It's, it's, not, it's not such a strange dynamic if you think of it in human terms. So we're getting to that time of year when I can remember uh, years and years ago when I was still in seminary and uh, pastoring a little bitty church. So I wasn't out of seminary yet for the big church, but uh, still in seminary. And the weekends would drive over into rural Illinois and pastor a little church where on a good Easter we would have about 20 people. And, uh, you know, it was a great place to learn to preach, even though I still want to go back and apologize to those people. You know, I'm so sorry. You know, uh, but, um, you know, I can remember when I was single at the time, you know, driving over one Sunday and uh, preaching my heart out. And at the end of that service, uh, one of my elders said, would you like to go on a picnic with my family? Now, I was single and food was being offered. What do you think I said? <laughs> I, I said, you bet, right? And so we, we drove uh, that part of the country, which is known as the Great River Road, which is where... Um, you know, you, Mississippi River is a mile wide there, and, you know, there's huge white limestone cliffs on one side, and you drive up the river, and the woods are dense, and it was the fall of the year, you know, so the leaves are turning colored, blue sky, shining sun, you know, scarlet and gold leaves, and we drove up to, to Elsa, if any of you know this restored Victorian village, and, and had a picnic. And uh, at, at the end of the picnic, the... Uh, 20-something-year-old daughter of my elder uh, said to me, uh, would you like to go on a walk with me? Now, the sky was blue, and the sun was shining. And she had blonde hair and green eyes. And she said, would you like to go on a walk with me? What did I say? I said, you bet. <laughs> and I've been walking with her more than 45 years now. <laughs> She's beautiful. Of course I want to walk with her. Why do we unfold the grace of God in all the scriptures? So that we will have God's people answer the question of God. Will you walk with me? Their hearts say, if his love for me is that beautiful, then I actually want to walk with him. Holiness is not getting people to do what they don't want to do. Holiness is filling people with such love for Christ that they will do anything to serve him. Walk any path. Make any sacrifice with joy as he did for them. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and calls us to our cross and to our holiness knowing it's not some grimacing, awful, terrible thing he's asking us to do. If our hearts love him above all other loves, then our greatest delight 
is walking with him wherever he calls. Whatever Holiness is the fruit. But not only holiness, we recognize a second consequence of love for God that exceeds all of the loves is service. If we love what and whom he loves, it becomes the ground, as I said before, for all mission and ethics. I will tell you, uh, there are certain common objections to this kind of redemptive preaching. Sees all the Bible as an unfolding of the grace of God that's the driving motivation of the Christian life. And uh, some common objections that we have to Christ-centered preaching is some people say, Uh, it's allegorical. You're trying to make Jesus magically appear where he's not in the Bible. I hope you know I'm not saying that. I haven't said that, right? We're seeing how the grace unfolds, but we're not trying to make Jesus magically appear where he's not. Second, people usually say it's antinomian. If you talk too much about grace, you are not going to talk about duty and doctrine. But actually, I've said they're absolutely necessary, just not sufficient. We're not saying it's now okay to steal. We've never gone there. You know, God doesn't care if you lie. We've never said that. No, we've actually said that the grace of God is the motivation to obey God. We are are not saying the commandments don't apply. But the third primary objection to a Christ-centered approach is that it's egocentric. You keep talking about the grace of God toward you, his people, So the rest of the world can go to hell in a handbag. You don't care because everything's okay between you and Jesus, right? As long as things are okay with you, your concerns are covered. And I actually have to kindly, but I hope firmly say to people, that is impossible. It is not impossible. If Christ is my love above all other loves, then I will necessarily love what and whom he loves. And the poor and the oppressed and the widow, and the orphan, and the unlovely, and the unforgiven are clearly those that Christ says he loves. And if my heart is set on his heart, if my heart is set on giving his heart pleasure, then his loves become the ethics and the mission that motivate me. Service becomes absolutely essential to the heart that is set on Christ. If Uh, By the way, you know this. What did Jesus say? If you love me, no, he said, in as much as you you provide for the least of these, my brothers, whom do you do it for? For him. In as much as you did it unto the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. He's actually saying, if you care for me, you'll care for them, right? Service is a consequence of such love. Now, if, if this love becomes essential to how, Right? So it's the, it's, the, it's the driving force, right? We already said people already know what to do most of the time. They're looking for the how. If we know that we're trying to help them with the power of obedience and that this love for Christ superseding all other loves is what is essential to power, then our next question is, what will fuel that love? What actually builds that love in us that is so powerful? Now, you must hear me say, I have not removed all of the practical things that we who disciple others know are needed. Do we sometimes need to say, 
you need to know that you just need some distance from that sin, right? You, you, may, you may need some program that helps you stay away from X. You may need some accountability measures. You may need a counselor. You, 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 you may need discipline. All these are practical things that we know help people who are human. So we've not taken any of that away. But what would make you embark upon such a course of discipline or practicality or counseling? It would be loving God above yourself, above your embarrassment, above your burden. You would, you would love God enough to do it. So what, what feeds, fuels love for God? The classic Christian answer is the means of grace. The means of grace. I've said these earlier today. What do we usually say in the church are the means of grace? Scripture, prayer, and the communion of believers. Okay, so those, those are ways in which God is feeding us with his grace. Now, here's the difficulty. When you talk even in the church about things like prayer and Bible reading and going to church and fellowship with God's people, even in the church, most people do not hear that phrase as means of grace. They hear it as means to grace. Here's some stuff you got to do, kind of awful chores, but you got to do this stuff to get some of that grace stuff. And that's never the way it was meant. Okay, These, these are not duties that we pay or bribes that we make to keep us on God's good side, which is how many Christians think of the Christian duties. Prayer, Bible, reading, whatever. This is what we do to stay on God's good side. This is bread, not bribes. We've already said, when I pray, the king of the universe bends all things to my good. I'm not bribing him. I'm plugging in to the beauty of what he provides. I have a son who's a super marathoner, which means he doesn't just do the, you know, the 26-mile deals. He does 50-mile deals and more. And um, I will tell you, I don't care how good a shape you're in. You get about to mile 20, you are going to open your mouth and try to take in some more oxygen. I mean, now when my son opens his mouth, you know, he's not saying, you know what, I need to manufacture some oxygen. He's not manufacturing. He's taking in the oxygen that's there. When we read the Bible, we are not manufacturing grace, right? We're taking in the grace of God that has been unfolded in all the scriptures. We're, we're, we're taking in the nutrients that are there. We're feeding our hearts and souls. We're being strengthened. We, we are not bribing God. We are partaking of the bread that gives our hearts strength and gives us more experience of the goodness that he is. When I begin to perceive um, what God has done in his word, these are means of grace that keep filling up my heart with love for Christ, which is the basis of my strength. I sometimes think of it this way. Um, my job has always, always, always involved a lot of travel. And um, the consequence of that is um, caring for my kids uh, sometimes is difficult. And, and our kids came in, in two stages. 
So we, we had uh, uh, three children uh, very early, and then we had our Mac baby. Anybody know what a Mac baby is? So that's a middle-aged crazy. Um, <laughs> and she came a lot later. And um, as, as she was in her late teens, and uh, I still travel a lot, uh, nonetheless, her busyness um, meant trying to keep up with her was really hard. And I would sometimes say to my wife, I'd say, you know, she is so busy and she is so active and I'm old <laughs> and I can't keep up with her. And my wife, wise and tender as she is, she would say, you know, the way we poured ourselves into the big kids, we got to keep pouring into this kid too. And what that meant for me is no matter how much my travel, how late I would get in, I would, I would always get up. And I would fix her breakfast, no matter how early the high school activities, I would get up and fix her breakfast. And it was just cereal, but I called it breakfast. And, uh, <laughs> and I would think to myself, you know, even, even as I'm filling up her cereal bowl with milk, what, what is my responsibility as the Christian father of this young Christian woman? And, and even as I'm filling up that cereal bowl with milk, I'm thinking, my job is to fill up her heart with love for Christ. Why? Because at 18, you and I know there are trials and there are temptations ahead. But if her heart is full of love for Christ, she cannot be more safe or more strong. And that is not true only of my child. That is true of every child of God. If their hearts are full of love for Christ, they cannot be more safe or more strong. If I am assured that Christ loves me despite my weakness and sin and failures, the joy of the Lord becomes my strength. And in that strength, I will serve him. It is what he has designed for me to both know and do and be. Out of love for him, I am changed. What that means is, what I told you before, there was a time in my Christian ministry that I believed the job of the preacher was to get people to do what they don't want to do. And I must tell you, that is a horrible job. I do not believe that anymore. I believe that my job is to enable God's people to love him more. And that is a wonderful job. Think of that. Every week, every Bible study, every counseling session, your job is to find that avenue, that means by which God's people are seeing how great is his grace to them so that they love him more and out of love for him, serve him in the joy that is their strength. It really is a wonderful job. And I commend it to you. It's a great privilege we have of discipling other people out of the grace that we have received for the grace that he would extend to many more.